Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, on another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you are new to the channel, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, please hit like and subscribe. Also, if you are a returning visitor, uh, glad to have you back. We're just going to get right into it today. Uh, this is a pre-recorded episode, so sadly, I can't respond to any of your positive or negative comments or questions, but definitely leave them in the comments because I, for the most part, respond to them there. The Poverty of Anti-Wokeness is the title of our guest article today. It seems like a lifetime ago when America welcomed its first black president, the United States was beginning the quote, post-racial era with Barack Obama in the White House. The fervor of a heterogeneous group of young voters that helped get him elected to the United States was making a massive leap forward in getting beyond its racial past. Was that really the case, though? It was during Obama's second term in office that Black Lives Matter was birthed out of the tragic vigilante murder of Trayvon Martin. A few years later, Eric Gardner and Michael Brown would meet similar face fates, but this time at the hands of law enforcement. This is the beginning of what our guest today notes as the first racial reckoning. The most popular dissenting voice in mainstream liberal media during this time is Ta-Nehisi Coates. Coates wrote glowingly of Barack Obama's two terms in office with his We Were Eight Years in Power, followed up by his Case for Reparations essay, and the book that won him the MacArthur Genius Grant Between the World and Me. Coates writes a narrative about the immutable force of white supremacy. White supremacy is infinite, and Black America's struggle against this powerful foe is an eternal struggle with no victory in sight. Sorry about that. Recently, Coates commented that all policies in the world don't matter as long as the hearts and minds of white people in power don't recognize the humanity of their minority subjects. What was in Obama's heart during his deportation and drone bombing campaigns? Coates and later Ibrahim X. Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, wrote books and gave talks for a fee on the perseverance of the original sin that is baked into the soul of the United States of America, racism, and gave rise to the commercialization of the idea of wokeness from our guest's piece in Compact Magazine. Before it was anything else, quote, wokeness was a pessimistic, counter-narrative to Obama-era post-racialism. It sought to establish the violent subjugation of Black people as the central truth of America's past and present and to reorient policymaking accordingly. As Coates puts it in one of the most quoted lines in From Between the World and Me, in America, it is traditional to destroy the Black body. It is heritage for whites Getting woke meant becoming attuned to the omnipresence and intra-se... I can't say the word. <laughs> of racial oppression of a policy level. It meant any approach that didn't put race front and center was at best inadequate and at worst pernicious. That is from our guest today, Jeff Schullenberger, a managing editor at Compact Magazine. Wherever you are listening 
for watching the show. There are links in the description to Jeff's piece and his social media profile. Please welcome Jeff Schellenberger. <laughs> it's intrasigence. I was practicing saying it before the show, and I totally blanked. We started. <laughs> Thanks for joining uh, us today, Jeff. How are you? In very hey, I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Um, in your piece, you start off by talking about a moment uh, Tanakhesi Coates has with Barack Obama, where he calls him out for the racial disparities in the universal coverage uh, in his Obamacare health plan. Tell us about that moment and why you wanted to start your piece there. So it was partly just uh, thinking about a sort of decade-long cycle of, of politics, of culture war politics, and the, the rise of this, um, this kind of new or revived sort of racial consciousness that we saw emerge, as, as you were describing in the intro, around you know, the, the first um, upswellings of Black Lives Matter protests, as well as kind of social media posting. And so, you know, this um, this incident where Coates confronts Obama at the White House, and at that point, you know, he's kind of he's there with a number of other liberal journalists, but he's he's relatively lonely in his kind of critical stance towards Obama, right? Who's just won his second term and is considered, you know, to be quite, uh, you know, I mean, is sort of has the uh, not quite the glow he had around 2008, but you know, he's regained some of it by by uh, you know. Uh, winning an impressive um, hard-fought election in 2012. And so Coates is sort of a detractor at this point. As you said, his later book that comes out after the Obama term is, is somewhat more um, celebratory. But at this point, he's mm -hmm. kind of you know, on his blog and, and in this encounter, he's, he's more critical. And what he points out, and, you know, that what I think what I think is striking here is that um, you know, kind of looking at the, the Affordable Care Act and the debates around it from, from the left at the time when all that was unfolding, you know, the usual criticism was, you know, it's kind of this piecemeal uh, reform, which is ultimately derived from kind of conservative think tanks. And, um, yeah. you know, it, it, it really just kind of, um, uh, it, it, it sort of um, reforms this, you know, quite broken and, and unjust system, like around the, the edges, but it doesn't really address its fundamental injustice. And, you know, most notable on the left was criticizing Obama for having not pushed through a public option, right? You know, mm -hmm. much less the sort of actual universal coverage of the sort we have in other parts of the world. You know, whereas Coates' critique is is different, right? What he's saying is, you know, the, the, the things you should be concerned about are the specific racial disparities in healthcare access. And so the problem with the Affordable Care Act is that it didn't address these disparities. So this foresees a line of criticism that you later see popularized by uh, the aforementioned um, Ibram Kendi, right, which is that, you know, the, the goal of any policy should be to reduce disparities between racial groups and, you know, that, that the sort of pursuit of, of, of social justice, you know, should, should focus primarily on this kind of racial, racial disparity frame. And so it struck me that, you know, around 10 years ago, we have Coates in the center of American power sort of confronting the president with this argument um, that at the time you didn't hear as much, um, but then it, it mm -hmm. becomes more and more 
uh, you know, more and more commonly voiced uh, and 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 widely accepted in, in the years after that. So it it seemed like an interesting inflection point uh, that that really you know what was um, and it and it was before Coates's book came out. It was before he released his essay on reparations. Yeah. Uh, which, which similarly, I think helped, or, or you know, was was quite crucial that that essay on reparations, you know, which was a very impressive piece of writing and reporting, um, you know, it was really it was quite an epic, uh, you know, almost kind of short book length piece of reporting that that I think really did um, shift the national conversation at least among sort of liberal, the liberal intelligentsia in in that direction. So so this seemed like, you know, the first glimmer of something that would become increasingly uh, you know, powerful as as an argument and, and compelling to many as an argument in the, in the years after that. I, I think Coates takes a lot of the case for reparations from Richard Rothstein's book, if I'm not mistaken, Color of Law. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that book definitely changed his stance because at one point in time he was not uh, very, very pro-reparations. And then he reads That's that right. book. That's right, yeah. Um, Coates is an interesting character, and uh, and I'm kind of glad you you centered your piece around him specifically because um, he uses this moment to rise to a level of importance for a guy that you know leaves all this political writing and goes to write you know, Black Panther and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, that's kind of where he wants to be anyway. If you really get to know the history of, of uh, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and um, that case for reparations, and it almost feels like it derails um, certain movements. I mean, in, in, in my piece, I, I read your piece not long after mine got published in, in Damage Magazine, um, and, uh, you know, I, I talk a little bit more about the you know, Bernie Sanders and the moment that he had dealing with with Black Lives Matter during his first election and how, you know, even in 2020, um, you know, what is your black agenda? And, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, to me, really puts that front and center um, in the post-Obama years, which is uh, when I say post-Obama years, I mean post-Obama in the White House. I don't mean post-Obama in the cultural realm because Obama is everywhere. He is you cannot escape the Obamas. <laughs> yeah. What's well, I mean, I suppose it's kind of interesting that Coates and Obama, both of them kind of before their rise to prominence, they they initially write, uh, you know, both of them write a kind of literary memoir, right? Mm -hmm. um, Obama's mm -hmm. Dreams from My Father, which comes out before he's really, I mean, and he writes, you know, when he has more literary ambitions, I think it's it's before he really necessarily yet sees himself as, as a as a political figure, although that was always part of what he was imagining, but um, you know that book is is kind of it's not uh, it's it's not manicured. It's it's kind of candid in some ways um, that mm -hmm. you know so that that make it not not like his later campaign book, let's say. And Coates, similarly, his previous book before Between the World and Me is uh, the Beautiful Struggle, uh, which which again I think you know he he writes before he's kind of developed the. Uh, the worldview we we maybe associate him with, um, and you know it's it's more of a kind of it's it's a work of literary memoir. So both of them are kind of um, you know they they both have this kind of literary bent, um, and and but in different ways become very significant at kind of setting and resetting the 
the the political agenda. Um, but you know, both of them are, you know, in some ways figures in the the sort of Black American literary tradition, we might say, and and they're kind of uh, drawing on, you know, the sort of riches of that tradition. And that's why I mean, to me, Coates seems like the most kind of interesting and sort of lasting figure of this of this moment, just because he does have the kind of you know, he, 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 he has a literary talent then that, uh, you know, someone like uh, Kendi that does not really. Um, and, and I think it, as you said, it is kind of interesting that he, he, you know, as, as the issues he really brings front and center sort of, you know, become a, in some sense, he himself kind of retreats back into these more literary pursuits. Of course, he writes his first novel um, yeah. a couple of years ago. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think he's he's probably the most interesting figure to come out of this whole kind of literary phenomenon of 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 the of the 2010s that I that I begin by by describing. I mean, it feels like he wants to be James Baldwin. Uh, I've never really felt that he was Baldwin. It's me personally. Um, yeah. But that's what it feels like he's definitely drawing on in between the world and me is his you know, his fire next time. Um, the first racial reckoning, as you call it, happens at the tail end of the Obama presidency. How does this, in your opinion, lead to the election of Donald Trump? How do we go from post-racial to racist president in just four years? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a <laughs> very complicated question. So I think, um, you know, we... Clearly, in the I mean, I'd say the really simple explanation that I that I hope you might be sympathetic to, which uh, is you know given what my my understanding and, and familiarity with your work is that you know underlying all of these are all all of these tendencies are is is a set of kind of material shifts in American life, right? And so you know I think in some sense there these are both. Uh, you know, both the sort of racial reckoning, which is is one expression of disillusionment with the sort of Obama era order that, let's not forget, you know, comes into being just as the financial crisis devastates the world economy. Obama, of course, comes in as somebody who's seen as a transformational figure who's, you know, supposedly promising a kind of new, you know, new socioeconomic order that will be more just and, and fair. And of course, you know, instead what we get is really, uh, uh, as, as everyone knows, uh, that, you know, no consequences for those who brought about the financial crisis and, you know, really quite a disastrous situation for uh, middle class and, and working class people in America um, because there are so many underwater mortgages brought about by this kind of insane speculative frenzy that preceded the, the crisis. And, you know, for the most part, these people are not are not helped out. They're not rescued at all. And this has a particularly devastating effect on, you know, as, as has been written about extensively uh, on on black wealth. Right. Um, and it's, you know, in, in terms that someone like Kendi or Coates would prefer, it's it's, you know, uh, there's a great deal of, of disparity in that effect. There's, a, you know, disproportionality that, that you know, Black Americans face uh, worse consequences overall, on average, from you know the fallout of this this um, this catastrophic collapse of home prices and people being left with, um, 
you know, with uh, underwater mortgages um, that they can't pay off, you know, that that, that is a, clearly a, um, a, a real phenomenon that can be very um, well documented in my piece. I cite uh, the People's Policy Project, yeah. which is Matt Brunig's, um, you know, sort of crowdfunded think tank, essentially. Um, where he 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 documents this in in detail and and also shows that you know this was really the consequence of of choices that Obama made right it wasn't just a situation he inherited um, but so so okay that's uh, that's just one example of of how the the fallout from the the financial crisis is um, is extremely severe. Um, for all sorts of people in all sorts of ways, um, it's never really resolved, right? Um, the the recovery is is uh, you know largely helpful at at kind of you know the the continuing to concentrate wealth in the hands of the the uh, the wealthiest, and you know generally creates a kind of dismal situation for for much of the country, right? And mm -hmm. things are sort of kept afloat and. You know, lots of uh, stimulus money is is injected into the economy to kind of prevent a further collapse. But you know, it's it's clear that things aren't so great. And so, you know, <laughs> that's in a simple sense why I think you know you you do have uh, in in the intervening years, you know, you have the Occupy movement, which I won't get bogged down in talking about, which you know sort of attempts to articulate a direct response to this. But you know that. Um, you know, once that sort of um, trails off for various reasons and doesn't quite, um, you know, gain political traction, two things happen, right? One is that I think, you know, left kind of organizing energies get channeled into, um, you know, the initial phase of the Black Lives Matter movement and this kind of, um, you know, increasing concern with with police violence and, mm -hmm. um and these these kind of spectacular, you know, viral uh, killings of, of of black people, and then on the other hand, you have the kind of initial phase of kind of electoral left populism and the sort of Bernie Sanders campaign. As you mentioned before, these two things kind of come into conflict at a certain point, right? Where Bernie is confronted for not sort of having a, a black agenda, as you said. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, what I'd say is that you have all of these things that are ultimately symptoms of just the complete, um, you know, disaster of 2008 and the the longer, more drawn out disaster of Obama's, you know, response of the Obama administration's response to it, and you know th that uh, the the fallout of of all of that is is not all felt at once, right? It 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 yeah. takes time. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the simplest sense, the simplest way to think about this and that, that I propose in the piece is that, you know, really there is a, an overall sense of kind of diminishing expectations, right, which is ironic that this era starts out with Obama's kind of soaring rhetoric and this idea of kind of recapturing some kind of, you know, vision of American progress. The overall reality of this period is, is um, you know, average people of all sorts, uh, feeling that, you know, the the sort of um, the the promise of America that they may have been led to believe in at some point was was simply not not being fulfilled, and so, um, you know, the, the way to respond to that, uh, you know, because in part, 
attempts to kind of respond directly to the economic um, situation, you know, were 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 made, um, but for various reasons didn't take off politically. And so instead, I think you know you had a certain kind of retrenchment um, into into identity groups. Right as as a way of kind of trying to confront the situation, right? And the, you know the question basically we might say is how do people organize themselves in order to um, you know extract or or you know make some kind of demands to power and um, you know extract some kind of concessions. So that's in a sense how we might think about all of these different kind of oppositional or anti-establishment political developments, and you know the, those. I think I think that's a kind of broad enough frame to understand, you know, developments both on the on the left and on the right, right? That you have these kind of um, these different expressions of disillusionment with the party establishments, mm-hmm, and definitely. ultimately what they amount to is is kind of attempts to, you know, constitute groups that can um, collectively make some demand on power. Now, often those demands I think are quite, um, you know, are, are in a sense kind of shockingly limited and unambitious in terms of what they are, <laughs> um, you know, that, that which I, I would say, you know, is, and I've, I wrote about this a few years ago, is I think a kind of internalization of the logic of austerity, right, that in some sense, Ooh. you know, people are attempting to make demands of power, but in fact, the, the demands they're making are actually not particularly um, demanding, right? They're, they're actually demanding quite limited and minimal things. And I would say that's that's a kind of reflection of the way that people have kind of been trained to uh, to limit their demands and expectations, you know, by overall conditions of austerity. It's interesting that you bring that up because when I think about that moment, especially 2008, as you know, it takes a while for the rubble to finally finish falling when it comes to the financial crisis, the crash and the loss of homes. Um, you know, as you probably know, uh, it, it wasn't instantaneous, right? It wasn't like a foreclosure happened for a lot of people and then they were out the next day. Some people stayed in houses for a year or two, sometimes even five years or all kind of, you know, the home records is a pretty good book. I can't remember the author's name mm. came out four or five years ago uh, that really detailed a a few people's uh, stories, especially with reverse mortgages and things like that, that really just ripped through um, elderly communities, especially elderly communities of color. Um, And so it took a while kind of for people to, to, to feel that. But when they did, you know, we get things like a growing elderly itinerant workforce at, at Amazon <laughs> that becomes yeah. a book that turns into a movie that almost glorifies homelessness and yeah. uh, van, van living for uh, upper middle class and above young people become a trendy hashtag yeah. and uh, part time lifestyle commitment. But for elderly people in this country, it becomes literal survival. Um, And I find it interesting that when we talk about that moment, we don't talk too much about the houselessness that happens um, because the problem then becomes just racism, which... 
kind of an abstraction, right? Like, okay, well, it's it's white people in law enforcement that's the problem. It's not that you know, Mima and Papa are living in an RV. It's you know that you might face some sort of violent end at the hands of law enforcement for a very banal traffic stop. And that's what always had me scratching my head about the whole thing. Cause I'm like, well, I just lost everything. I lost a business. I lost homes. I lost my cars. Like I lost everything. And I, it wasn't the cops that took it. It was the sheriff that put a lock on the door, but ultimately, <laughs> you know, we're not we're not talking about that. And it almost felt like the people that were complaining the most, and and you know, other you know people have talked. Adolf Reed definitely talks about this. Seemed to be coming from you know a middle class place, and this becomes their their cause. Um, I guess that leads into my my third question or talking point these are more talking points than questions right wokeness seems to be a pmc ideology that doesn't really uh have much effect on the lives of poor and working class black americans how does this kind of niche project gain such uh impressionable ground in uh, in the current discourse so you know, I, I think and I'll, I'll sort of, um, you know, try to make this partly anecdote. I think in the, in the sure, piece sure. I try to, in the piece I try to um, make it, you know, a kind of broader, maybe sociological analysis. But, you know, this is partly derived from anecdote and from the environments that, that I exist in. Mm. And, you know, I think there, there are a few things here. One is that, you know, there was a kind of, you know, going back to say the 90s, you know, that there was kind of a, let's just take one example. Um, you know, I remember being very young when the Malcolm X movie uh, came out. <laughs> Spike Lee's Malcolm, Malcolm X. Yeah, and yeah. so like, you know, there's kind of this, and you know, I mean, I, I remember seeing Do the Right Thing when I was very, you know, which, which mm -hmm. really, um, you know, it, it dramatizes the, the same sort of situation that galvanizes the uh, the the BLM protests, really. Um, so you know, th there is, I think, alongside the of the kind of Gen X and maybe older millennial cohort, um, you know, who are kind of coming into positions in in the media, you know, such that they're able to set the terms of the discourse. Like th there is a kind of um, undercurrent of these, you know, these more pessimistic accounts of, of race in America, um, you know, that, that, that go back a long way, right? That, that's always, you know, th there's always been some level of exposure, right, to that. And there, there's a kind of familiarity of it um, that I think, you know, means that, that it's, it's, it's maybe not that difficult to activate because there's always, there, there's already some um, you know, some kind of knowledge of it and familiarity with the basic frameworks of it uh, that, that are, you know, that, that make up some portion of the kind of um, culture that, that, you know, thinking, you know, basically middle class sort of educated white people absorbed, um, you know, during, during those kind of years of the 80s and 90s. 
you know, which I mean, particularly the nineties are now remembered as, as, you know, this time when supposedly we were sort of, you know, and now people kind of look back critically on this, right. But, you know, supposedly this time when sort of, you know, race was being overcome and so on, but, you know, that wasn't the whole picture, right. There was, there was this yeah. kind of counter discourse already present then, but yeah. I mean, I would say just the thing that, you know, anecdotally strikes me is, um, you know, if you think about what happened in in 2008 and again, the kind of glow around the Obama project, mm -hmm. you know, which was really quite, <laughs> really quite vacuous in a lot of ways. Right. It, it, it was it was not um, <laughs> it, it was not a particularly robust vision, um, but. <laughs> You know, people were really uh, people were really looking for and, you know, you could see this all around like people were, you know, looking for this kind of this kind of figure and this kind of project to attach themselves to just in order to have some kind of sense of, of you know, kind of shared moral purpose. And so I think people were really, um, you know, and, and and again, you know, and as I talk about in the, the piece, um, you know, that, that there was this kind of broader, you know, question of like, what what is America sort of after the Cold War moment is over? Um, you know, what is America coming into the new millennium? Um, you know, you, you get on the right, this very influential answer to that, right, which is basically the kind of project for a new American century, this kind of robust, yeah. like unipolar, full spectrum dominance of the world, which is attached to this kind of messianic project of spreading democracy. So that whole thing, you know, is kind of falling apart. And in in the absence, you know, so there's, I think, and, and, and this speaks to kind of what the significance of the sort of second Bush term and the you know, Abu Ghraib and and Oof, uh, these other yeah. kind of these other kind of atrocities that are coming to light in this period that it really it creates this vacuum where, uh, you know, th there's a, a great disillusionment, which I think is then reinforced in a different way by the financial crisis. And so people are just really looking for some kind of, you know, project to to attach themselves that will give some kind of, you know, shared purpose and vision to their sense of of what they're doing. And so anecdotally, I can just say, like, you know, I, I observed this all around. It was it was very hard to be, you know, particularly in the kind of university setting, you know, the, the sort of group think around like Obama, you know, <laughs> being a sort of oh um, man, and if Obama devotee was extremely yeah. strong, right? And so I think that group think, you know, and and then sort of let's say, you know, six to eight years later. Kind of the group think coalescing around the kind of you know a, a vision that is in so, was in some ways a kind of inversion of that which is this kind of you know quite pessimistic uh vision about about race and america you know that that i mean the group think around it became similarly intense right it, it became it became very um hazardous to kind of dissent from it and and so you know i think in the kind of educated milieu of like whatever elites and and sort of minor elites in the making, I would certainly say that uh, you know those two moments kind of mirrored each other in a sort of inverted way, right? That that both of them represented this kind of sense of okay, like what is America? What is our purpose in the yeah. world? Um, and what what kind of shared 
purpose do we have that we can kind of commit to and give ourselves some kind of sense of meaning? And so both were, were responses to that, you know, both really kind of, and, you know, I, I think um, a, few, a few people have pointed this out as well, that, you know, it's interesting that like in the post sort of 1965 era with, you know, mass immigration from Asia and Latin America, you have this kind of, as well as the rise of a great deal of kind of um, interracial marriage, uh, you know, mixed race families and so on, you know, you have a complicating of the kind of, um, of the kind of, you know, racial makeup of the, of the country, right, which is, of course, part of what inspires this idea that we're going to enter this post-racial era. But, you know, what, what these, uh, you know, what this new narrative does is, is in a sense take, you know, retreats back into this kind of relatively simple ground where you can have a kind of clear binary mm -hmm. and kind of orient yourself and your sense of the kind of morality of, of politics around that binary, you know, which is, which is presented in things like Kendi's work and the 1619 project and elsewhere is just this kind of foundational and inescapable fact of, of America, right? And so it, it provides you with this kind of orientation in this otherwise kind of bewildering world where all these kind of attempts to create new shared narratives seem to be failing. And so, you know, I, I think that's, and, and again, this is, I guess maybe I ended up being more sociological than I intended to hear, but certainly it's something I could kind of feel and observe all around me um, you know, during those years. And I'm, you know, I'm talking about sort of being around like educated white people. <laughs> this was, it's, it's they were just, they were looking for these kind of stories and they were, you know, easily brought into this condition where they were extremely protective of them and kind of caught up in this type of group thing. It's interesting you say that because, you know, I remember, you know, 2004, I remember, you know, the, the huge pro, we've been talking about this on the show quite a lot, you know, the, big anti-war protest of 2003 that's this massively large protest but you know bush gets reelected. no war is stopped or really even discussed when we think about the anti-war movement i think if you ask the average young person uh if about the anti-war movement they would probably mention you know flowers and guns in the 60s and the iconography of, of hippies um, no one really thinks about you know, Gen Xers uh, marching um, because I think we see that moment as a loss um, and we see the hippies as some sort of victory. Um, also, you know, we uh, I want to harken back to your, your Spike Lee comment, which uh, I appreciate you, you mentioning Spike Lee. I've, I've done my fair share of work on this show. Uh, the last video essay I did um, was called um, Same As It Ever Was, and it's about um, kind of the continuity of black exploitation in film and how uh, it doesn't look to me much different in the modern era than it did um, in the quote-unquote black exploitation era when it comes to stereotypical images. You know, Wakanda is a monarchy and a technologically advanced empire where... Uh, people still ride animals and have spears. <laughs> and it's Wakanda, through the lens Wakanda. of, yeah, you know, it's two old white guys, Jack Kirby and, and, uh, and uh, Stan Lee, you know, create Wakanda. You know, it wasn't like you know, Huey Newton sitting there and Bobby Seale were the advisors on that. 
Um, Wakanda is almost, it's almost neo-reactionary, you know, it's this kind of, oh. uh, you know, this high-tech monarchical sort of, <laughs> um, you know, highly isolated state. It's, it's, yeah. like, um, it's like these guys who are, you know, fascinated with Singapore or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's what, what's funny, you know, who's behind Disney that's greenlighting this stuff? It's funny when you... When you, I did the end of that video essay. I show a thing that I think Jimmy Kimmel had done, where he had—is it Jimmy Kimmel, or Jimmy Fallon? One, one of the Jimmys uh, did a thing where they had the late, um, oh, what is the young man's name that passed away that played uh, Chadwick Boseman? Chadwick Boseman, yeah, is hiding behind a mirror, and people are there talking about how much they like the movie. And then Chadwick Boseman would come out and people were like, yeah, I told my son that the two greatest black people in the world are you and Barack Obama. I'm like, fuck, I'm, I, I weep for your son. That's his reality. <laughs> Fucking greatness. But um, Spike Lee, to me, has a very interesting origin story because he becomes kind of the face of black film that, in my opinion, uh, his mission is kind of to destroy this uh, super Negro uh, caricature that really gains a lot of popularity in the 70s through what we call black exploitation films. And I think Spike Lee feels that he's not getting enough stories of his class of black person. Mm -hmm. Spike Lee also comes up around the same time as we get Bill Cosby, which also um, for a time destroys uh, these uh, ideas of what the black family looks like or can look like, right? Um, before Cosby, it's it's good times and the Jeffersons. Um, yeah. And 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 this it's a very different depiction uh, of of black family life with with these two filmmakers and Spike Lee's uh, she's got to have it is premiered in front of a predominantly white audience in San Francisco. And it is only when those people give it a standing ovation that the movie studios go, okay, well, let's back this guy. <laughs> so it's like, you kind of have to ask the question, well, who are these movies ever, ever for anyway? Yeah. Um, and, and what kind of life is it depicting? And there's a flattening of, of blackness, I think, in a lot of the people that we're discussing today that, um, all of us face the same problems, no matter what. You know, it's the Henry Louis Gates got pulled over by the cops. So, of course, racism is forever uh, the rock that Sisyphus is pushing uphill. And I'm like, well, Henry Louis Gates' uh, interaction with law enforcement is going to be much different than mine. You know, I'm not going to be able to say I'm going to call my friend the president, literally the freaking president. You know, and and we'll get this rectified. And if I I got the expired tags, I get pulled over. It's not going to be good for me. <laughs> now th- that was another uh, interesting episode in the Obama era, right? That he, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Gates is brought into the White House, and I think they have this. It's like a beer summit, right? With yeah. The, with the white cop. It's a uh, very odd. Uh, another interesting thing about Gates, which I. And not, not to get too sidetracked, but, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you look into Gates's archive, he really, uh, in the 80s and 90s, he 
you know, wrote several pieces really, um, you know, attempting to kind of dismantle critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, I mean, I mean, it's interesting just in terms of the way that, you know, which, and again, you know, part of my point in the piece is that a lot of these ideas, they're, they're kind of sitting around and they, they have a sort of, you know, relatively limited kind of institutional reach, you know, critical race theory being one of them that's sort of been around since the 70s, 80s. Uh, in but, law school. You know, at that point, right, yeah, yeah. But, but at that point, you know, Gates, Gates comes in and he's really, you know, um, he's at that point the kind of rising star of, of you know, African-American studies as a discipline. And he writes a couple of, you know, extremely devastating attacks on, on critical race theory. And it does seem, you know, and these are four kind of middle brow, you know, mainstream magazines. I can't remember exactly which ones, but, uh, you know, he, it does seem like within the court of kind of, uh, you know, sort of mainstream elite liberal opinion, you know, Gates very much wins the day against critical race theory at that point uh, in the, in the sort of early nineties. And so it's, it, you know, it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, I mean, he's this figure who's been around for a long time. Uh, but, you know, at that point, uh, he, he was clearly positioning himself in a certain way, you know, against, um, you know, figures like Derek Bell, uh, who um, I think, you know, we, we could clearly say, and, you know, contrary to what sort of a lot of right-wing narratives would, would claim, you know, that a, a, a discipline like African-American studies at that point in, in leading figures like Gates was, was actually kind of strongly trying to differentiate itself from, you know, the work of people like Derek Bell. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, and these splits were, were significant because um, th- there was a kind of respectability that figures like Gates achieved you know, and kind of, again, sort of mainstream middle, and of course now he has a TV show. But you know, so, so the idea that, you know, it, it's actually not even really the case, the critical race theory, you know, it, it, it was still a relatively marginal and kind of marginalized thing in academia and, you know, was, was kind of put down and, and, uh, you know, uh, was was sort of um, had to be kind of disavowed by somebody like Gates, or didn't have to be, but but was disavowed by somebody like Gates because um, you know that they were they were trying to you know people like him at the time were were trying to carve out a, a different kind of political space within within academia and within kind of you know the world of like the Atlantic readership, and that that's. That's all other thing that came up in this piece, by the way, which is like yes. the significance of the Atlantic magazine and kind of setting yes. the the uh, the tone of and, and the terms of the, the discussion, you know, because, of course, Coates is there, but and Kendi is there as well. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that would be different from the Atlantic in like the 90s or 2000s, where the kind of Gates, you know, position against critical race theory would, would be quite a bit stronger and and have quite a bit more of a of a following. Can we just admit that Henry Louis Gates is the Maury Povich of intellectual? <laughs> Bernie Sanders, you are the slave owner. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but did they have health care? Um, 
that's the show that we really need, right? That's the show that America. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know I don't have you for much longer, and there's a couple things I definitely want to get your opinion on. I was speaking of the Atlantic, I was actually having a conversation, which is where this question comes from, with a friend of mine who uh, published a very interesting piece in the Atlantic after the uh, uh, decision to end affirmative action. Bertrand Cooper. So has wokeness and anti-wokeness discourse obfuscated the fact that liberals are the victors in the culture war, yet conservatives have won politically you know this is something that i don't think we talk about when we talk about culture wars we act as if there is some sort of battle um i don't know if there really is one because culturally wokeness is championed again wakanda can't be made black panther can't be made um, if not for, for wokeness. Um, and I'm saying that as a comic book fan, you know, there's some marginal characters <laughs> in comics, you know, some of it has to do with, you know, licensing rights, but let's just be honest here. Uh, but politically we've seen Roe v. Wade. We've seen kids in cages. You know, uh, uh, there hasn't been much for housing security. Nothing's happening on the healthcare front. Positive. Politically, it feels like the right's in charge. Look at the courts, from the Supreme on down to the federal courts. Look at state legislatures becoming little fiefdoms, if you will. But the culture war, you know, the Obamas are running a victory lap right now with their Netflix deal. There's a there's a um, stamp from the beginning uh, movie coming out, which is really interesting considering what happened to Ibrahim X. Kendi. It's not like he's losing donor dollars. It's not like people still aren't calling on Ta-Nehisi Coates to be the voice of whatever. You know, the guy that said that, you know, you know the way Israel and Palestine did reparations sure sure seems like it works fine. You know, now he's singing <laughs> quite a different tune. But, but uh, again, culturally, wokeness is champion. For better or for worse, you know, I kind of don't care what kind of Superman if he's non-binary, but you know, th- these these cultural markers are all over the place of of wokeness's victory lap. Uh, recently, I saw Disney has a new director for some new Star Wars stuff. That is a woman that said it's time for us to have some female-centered stories in the Star Wars universe, which I thought was interesting because I was like, didn't you watch the last three movies? <laughs> Silly me. Um, but politically, there's nothing. You know, we talk about this on the show where we self and say black power has succeeded culturally, where it failed politically. It feels that wokeness is the same thing. What is your opinion on that, Jeff? Yeah. So, 
you know, you bring up the the courts. I mean, it's worth noting that, you know, you know, the right likes to talk about this sort of long march to the institutions that <laughs> these kind of um, left wing figures go into academia. You know, my own take on this, which some people on the right actually agree with, is that I mean that that was mostly um, to the detriment of of the left rather than to its benefit. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I agree with you. I am in total. I'm in total agreement with you on that, really. It 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 created a very different set of incentives, and um, you know that that basically uh, left wing sort of theory ideas became a kind of currency of 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 professional advancement within academia. So, you know that that's and anybody who's sort of spent time around sort of academic Marxists, you know. Whatever, some of them are my best friends, so no offense to them, but they, they do um they, they, they do tend to uh, <laughs> but they, you know they, they do tend to um academic Marxists, you know, they they function by all appearances the same way that academic uh you know, whatever Milton Friedmanites would, right? Mm -hmm. Um so so that's that's significant. Um but you know so so you know, there's a question of like which institutions. So you know, you could say the right with figure, you know, things like the Federal Society undertook a kind of systematic, yeah, project of of you know getting judges appointed, um, you know, ensuring a kind of um, consistency around around various positions, and and so that's borne fruit in one way. You know, the the left's. Um, you know, or, or, you know, particularly the kind of cultural left or whatever we want to call it, um, the, you know, its capture of various kind of institutions has has enabled certain things to happen. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's it's quite shocking how. Um, I mean, you bring up like whatever state houses, small, you know, just like the, the, it, it, it seems clear to me that, say, you know, something like the, the pro-life movement, and I, I wrote something about this last year, um, you know, is is not is not particularly good at sort of um, winning in the court of public opinion, right? It's the it hasn't necessarily uh, moved the needle on making more people agree with it, maybe a little bit, but overall not really. But um, and and in fact, it's been losing you know, in, in some decisive ways in, in the political field. But nonetheless, mm -hmm. it did um, figure out how to organize in such a way that it could make remarkable progress at achieving its aims, you know, without necessarily um, needing to sort of have a great deal of public opinion behind it. So, you know, I think I think there are sort of questions about how 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 different political formations organize what institutions they emphasize. And I don't know, I mean, <laughs> There's probably a lot to get into as to why, you know, certain um, groups went in certain directions. But you know, going back to your initial question, I think you know part of the thing, part of the 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 way I would see it is that ultimately these things are are quite symbiotic, right? That they, um, you know, that that the there are ways that the cultural sort of hegemony of of a certain form of of liberalism is is actually quite optimal for you know, certain economic aims that are generally associated with the right um, and, and vice versa, right? That, that, that the two things are, are not really um, entirely separable, right? That there's kind of a, a way that, um, you know, that, that um, 
disseminating a certain vision of, of liberalism as the kind of cultural, the, you know, the kind of shared cultural agenda of at least the educated class, you know, which which ramifies, as you said, in, in you know, popular culture and, you know, um, elite institutions like that, that this is not, um, you know, that, that this is actually quite helpful to certain sort of economic projects, right? That, that, that these are, these are, um, these are arrangements that have kind of developed in a kind of symbiotic relationship over the decades. Um, and, and the final question I have is, is again, is that our time is, is of the essence for you today. Um, in your piece, you quote Freddie DeBoer, where he says, show me a movement and I'll show you someone willing to profit off it. Um, that to me makes these movements seem inherently sinister. Can't there be true believers who feel that because of the genuine belief in their cause, they should be able to profit off of it? Can we kind of broaden that to say that, uh, as, as Mark Fisher wrote about uh, so presciently in uh, uh, Capitalist Realism, that maybe we need to say neoliberal realism, that we can have honest beliefs, genuine beliefs, of what a fair and just society should look like. And there's nothing wrong with making a few bucks off it um, because the nonprofit uh, complex, I'm not going to call it this, but the nonprofits in general um, aren't really necessarily left projects. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. And I, I, I was sort of, you know, trying to hint at that with my, remarks about, you know, what, what I, what I felt and experienced as far as the kind of shifts in, mm -hmm. in opinion, you know, in my sort of social media, um, in, in the past sort of 15 years uh, that, you know, people were, I mean, not only did people really genuinely believe these things, but they, they really, um, they really were drawn to them because they offered something to believe in. And so I, I firmly think that's true of, of a lot of these. I mean, yeah, I think it's probably, I think it's even true of, you know, if you think of the scandal around the, the, um, you know, Black Lives Matter founders, yeah. sort of uh -huh. sketchy properties. And yeah. <laughs> sort of, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, I don't want to claim I can mind read anybody, but, um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that, yeah, the, that, the, the the people who who uh, extracted those benefits, you know, believed that what they were doing was was just and in the name of a just cause, and that they actually deserved that because of the um, because of the the value of of the work they were doing. And so yeah, I don't I and I yeah, so I would slightly disagree with Freddie there, or at least with the way that he frames it. That that I think actually it's the the true belief that can. Um, that can make the, you know, what in some cases, and I mean, in some cases are just kind of minor, um, you know, careerism and so on, but, um, and, and sort of opportunity, opportunism, but in other cases are, are actually like pretty spectacular corruption as in this case, you know, can really be driven by the sense of, of justice, right? That, that if you're, um, that if you're, if you're really, uh, you know, in a sense, like one of the elect, right, who's really been and kind of chosen in some sense to do the work of, mm -hmm. of you know, remedying these great social problems, then, yeah, that, that probably creates a sense that, you know, what you're doing is, is deserving of, of those kind of rewards. So, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't see those 
I, or I, I wouldn't see it as a as requiring cynicism. Obviously, there are some figures who might be. I don't know. You know, I'd be interested to know like what uh, say like Sean King is really. <laughs> heart of hearts, but you know, so there, there are some who seem, you know, whose who's kind of whose kind of um, grift seems blatant enough that uh, it's it's harder to tell. But I'd say with with a lot of these figures, it really is, uh, you know, something where the this the or, or there there are things that can kind of be objectively cynical without being subjectively cynical, if that makes sense. That you know that there's almost yes. like um, that. You know, if if you look at the the function that this ideology is serving, then it it you know there, there's a kind of irony in the situation that that implies a kind of objectively cynical character. But you know that that the people themselves, I I don't think um, for the most part experience it as a as a kind of cynical grift. On the contrary, that's where I again push back on stuff like that. I I did read I think. 40% of, of DeBoer's last book. And um, that that's, I think, to assume or to frame it in a certain way where they're just not good people kind of opens you, opens up the more rank and file population um, that may not be devouring all this left content into the, this idea that um, everybody is a scammer and it is people like Donald Trump that tell the truth, even in their despicable nature. Um, you know, he's honest in his criminality so that the, it, to me, it gives rise to the idea of an anti-hero an honest, yeah, a, 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 a bad guy with a good heart. And uh, that seems to be what you get from that idea. And I think we have to be a little more honest in our critiques. I think Cedric Johnson uh, has some very, very sincere critiques of, of Black Lives Matter in, in his last book. Um, and the dismissiveness, I think, in people's honesty, because it goes back to me, what you said about Spike Lee, that you know, John Singleton, all those movies that come out in the 90s, there is some honesty in that where people are living precarious lives, your reliance on law enforcement really isn't there. Um, you know, either you you need them and sometimes you're scared if they show up. You know, I, I, I'm 46, so I remember uh, growing up in, in Northern California in the 90s extremely vividly. Um, so... It, it, as much as I don't like a lot of the things that come out of Black Lives Matter, I can't be so dismissive that all they wanted to do was was get hundreds of millions of dollars and they knew that was going to happen all along. It's kind of foolish and, and, and arrogant. Yeah, and I mean, another thing I argue in the piece that I think a lot of the kind of anti-woke discourse mm -hmm. doesn't, doesn't fully articulate is, yeah, there is on one hand a kind of rationality to the project, right? That it's, um, you know, I, I think particularly a lot of the, the coverage you get from the right, but also the kind of intellectual dark web sort of center is like, I don't know, this stuff is just like irrational. It's, it's just this kind of, um, you know, it's like people lack critical thinking. They've just been like deluded by these ideas. No, I mean, I think there is a kind of rationality to it almost kind of operationally, right? That it, it, it does have to do with, um, you know, as I as I put it at the beginning, 
kind of organizing on some collective level to be able to make some kind of demands and extract some kind of concessions. And so it does work. I don't think it works. Um, <laughs> I don't think I don't, I don't think it works very broadly, right? I think it, it works for certain subsets of people um, in certain contexts. Uh, and in some sense, the the fact of it is a kind of indictment of the the absence of kind of broader collective political projects, right? That that mm -hmm. have been sort of demobilized and, and crushed in various ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but yeah, but but I think that um, that fact doesn't mean that that people don't um, you know don't believe in the. I, I think people do believe in the validity of these of, of these kind of forms of of collective organizing um you know even if the the actual sort of payoffs of them are perhaps less sort of lofty than their their rhetoric might you know frame them to be <laughs> nevertheless there there is a you know they, they are yeah I, I think they are driven by a genuine belief and and sense of justice and um you know the and the and again perhaps part of the problem here is the the withdrawal from, you know, certain maybe more kind of capacious projects of, of justice or of kind of collective organization, mm -hmm. right, which which might be, in some sense, asking for more. I mean, just going back to, um, you know, BLM, I think something that's quite notable about it is just, you know, if, if it's framed as kind of this demand to, like, stop, stop killing us or stop, you know, killing people, it's a just demand right it's a, it's a reasonable thing to demand it's also quite a limited thing to demand right because ultimately you know you, you can be alive and also be in quite a bad way right and so you know to go to some examples of this that have come up recently i mean i think the situation of george floyd is is notable here right um Ooh, okay. like the fact of his having been killed is is one element of the kind of tragedy of his existence but you know th there were many things about him that were um you know th there are many problems he faced that would not have been solved by his not being killed if that makes sense yeah. um in other words his um his that 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 demand uh doesn't offer very much in terms of like what is the broader vision for for the the sort of positive goods that someone in his position might be able to obtain that, um, you know, you know, were they to live longer? Um, and I think an even more kind of striking instance of this was the killing of this man, uh, Jordan Neely in here in New York, uh, Ooh, in the subway, yeah. which, yeah. you know, th there was a long piece kind of looking into his life and background in New York magazine a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. And, you know what was interesting there was that um you know both his best friend and like a clinician who had worked with him when he was in rikers in the kind of uh, psychiatric facility within rikers and a few other people sort of said like look he was in a state where you know because of his severe mental health issues and addict you know addict addictions he was in a state where you know, essentially being left loose <clears throat> as he was, um, something terrible was going to happen to him, right? And everybody knew that. Um, yet there was kind of this inability to do anything about it. Um, so, 
I think that's kind of another example of like where the, the protests that that set off briefly, you know, were really about like he shouldn't have been killed. But, you know, what about like the way he was living before that? I mean, again, I'm just struck by the kind of, um, you know, and, and this isn't just a matter of his not having had access to housing or things like that. It was, it's partly also a matter of like how you how a society deals with people in the kind of state that he was in, right? Which is a difficult question and raises all kinds of ethical issues in terms of, you know, whether we can essentially forcibly confine people um, who are, you know, considered a danger to themselves and others. But I guess, again, what strikes me here is that um, there's, there's a kind of limitedness to this vision, right? That it's saying, okay, he shouldn't have died, but like, what is it saying positively about his life? I mean, and it's, you know, and, and another thing to add, um, I mean, you brought up NGOs, you know, it's also notable that, I mean, NGOs are part of the sort of broader, you know, and this kind of goes back to like the left winning and, or, you know, liberalism in a certain version winning in some contexts and the right winning in others, right? I mean, there's a kind of, um, you know, neoliberal privatization, let's say, you know, it takes multiple forms. One of them is uh, the expansion of the NGO complex, right? And the kind of outsourcing of various kinds of, um, you know, societal state functions onto these NGOs, right? Which, mm -hmm. which have all sorts of um, incentives that are often quite perverse, right? Because they, you know, they have people who have jobs that depend on a problem continuing to exist. Um, and so in some sense, it's not really in their interest to conclusively solve certain problems, um, just in a kind of, you know, sense of rational self-interest. And so what you have are all these kind of this complex of NGOs with people who are, you know, in a situation like Jordan Neely's who don't really have an incentive to, you know, provide any kind of broader solution, because in a sense, what they're being funded by you know, this kind of outsourcing of taxpayer dollars to do is to kind of manage the the ongoing crisis, right? But not to not to come up with any way of of really fundamentally addressing it, right? They're just they're just being being funded to kind of continue to manage it to some you know undefined degree of sustainability. And so, you know, it, it strikes me that that is also kind of connected to this limited vision right where if if you're if a great deal of kind of progressive um energies are kind of channeled into this ngo world it sort of makes sense that what animates it are not um you know broadly ambitious political projects but instead projects that kind of have to do with like tinkering at the edges and otherwise just kind of managing a situation that's seen as as ultimately inalterable and you know, fixed, right? So, which is why it makes sense for this kind of more pessimistic view to um, to take hold in that kind of a space. So, sorry, I've been I've been going on for a bit, but no, 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 no. I I think it's I think it's all really interesting. You know, uh, neoliberal capitalism is a, is a, is a vicious beast that leaves us with extremely complex problems that one size fits all uh, hashtag like solutions. Uh, we'll never be able to answer and we have to get beyond that level of thinking. And I think the NGO world uh, is just so caught 
you know, in trying to triage. It's just triage. It's it's really what it is. And there's going to be more Jordan Neelys in, in where I'm from in the Bay Area around the same time. I think it was that same week a young trans man was killed, uh, Banco Brown. Um, so by a security guard who was black, so it didn't get the same type of coverage because the sensationalism around Jordan Neely and the white man doing it, um, you know, made people want to get out and protest opposed to um, another transient young person uh, getting getting killed by uh, private law enforcement in the name of, of security for, I think it was a Walgreens uh, in downtown San Francisco. Uh, for some reason, doesn't get looked at the same way. We can't get the same uh, fervor in the air uh, to to want to get out and protest or do anything about that. Uh, because I think ultimately, once we get out collectively and yell, you're done, right? No more. Okay. Well, we didn't kill him, but there's a bunch. There's more people living like Jordan Neely that could use your help. You want to help them out? And it's like, whoa, whoa! I yelled over there. Going home now. I got my I got my selfies. <laughs> I'm yeah. done. So that that is kind of a sad reality of, of even George Floyd. Think of all the money that was given out in grants in the name of George Floyd that he never would have qualified for. So on a somber note. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and I, I think um... – the, you know, the, the, the just one final thing, you know, what, what all of this speaks to is, uh, you know, and, and this is part of what I say about, you know, these various kind of anti-woke books as well, is that, you know, that there's really, a, a, you know, we're all, everybody in different ways is just kind of looking at and grasping onto certain symptoms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's usually... Uh, you know, and usually this becomes a distraction in various ways, right? It, the, the, the symptoms become mistaken for causes, right? Mm. And so this, um, so, so then a great deal of, of uh, attention is devoted to some symptom or other. But meanwhile, and I think, again, partly because there is a kind of um, liquidation of kind of broader and more ambitious uh, political projects, um, you know, it, it makes sense that this would be the case, that you, you just have a kind of um, constant, you know, and, and in the case of these kind of spectacular, horrible incidents, you know, they tend to be sort of the, the symptom when it becomes kind of most acute and most uh, disastrous. Only at that point does it attract any attention. Right. And of course, by that point, it's already really too late. And so then we, you know, kind of drift along and wait for the next thing to pop up that will, you know, that will present another symptom of these, these much deeper and kind of festering crises. And unfortunately, you know, what, what, what is still lacking is, uh, you know, a political project that will, um, that will attempt to, you know, address these on a more fundamental level. His name is Jeff Schellenberger. 
He is a managing editor at Compact Magazine. Where, again, wherever you are watching or listening to the show, there's a link in the description to his article, The Poverty of Anti-Wokeness. Also, if you're enjoying what you've seen here today, please give the show a like. Definitely subscribe. Hit the notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live. These are all passive gestures that go a very long way in making sure we can continue to do what we do here at TIR. Also, if you have the means and feel so inclined, become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can have access to our TIR champagne room, past and present. Join us for movie nights and much, much more. Jeff, thank you so much for hanging out with me. Uh, it is the day for me, the, the afternoon for you. And uh, we are out.